make me happy You know just what to say But I ain't Cinderella Who'd wanna be anyway Of all the things I wanted One thing I never got Was to be treated like somebody Just to have one shot I can't go back About working on a dream I'm not quite there yet I'm somewhere in between I hear you talking How I deserve the best A voice inside my head keeps saying Don't settle for less And welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, August 19, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning, and uh, I was very excited when you forwarded on your uh, Masterworks Broadway column about the Broadway trivia. So mm-hmm. we uh-huh. have, uh, I'm sure that our listeners are going to get hours and hours of reading pleasure out of that. I was starting to go through it. Lots of fun. So um, if you are a listener who is especially fond of Peter's trivia, get over to uh, Masterworks Broadway, and we have a link to that in the show notes as well. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Morning. Good morning. So let's uh, jump right into the reviews here. Uh, Michael and Peter have both gotten an opportunity to see Getting the Band Back Together. So Peter, why don't you start us off with Getting the Band? There are two uh, things in the show that really amazed me. One was just before the end of the first act, an actor named Paul Witte, who's playing a drummer, uh, with two fingers, treated a drumstick like it was a baton. He twirled it incredibly well. And I do say, if you go to this show, make sure you pay attention to that moment at the end of the first act. The other thing that was amazing uh, was that a scrim came down in act two. Now, um, People came in front of the scrim and started performing. This is known as an in one because it's um, number one part of the stage. So uh, it's a convention that was used a lot in the golden age of musicals. It's sort of faded away because um, what it was really for was the scenery was being replaced in the background and um, they didn't want people seeing the sets change. Now, of course, we're very used to having people come on and moving furniture, sometimes the actors themselves. But uh, anyway, what's the, the script that came down was actually uh, purported to be a newspaper. There it was with the banner of the name of the paper and all this kind of stuff. And there were stories all over the um, newspaper. And if you look carefully and you have a good seat, and I think you will be able to get a good seat to getting the band back together, you will notice on the upper left-hand side, the story is, and I got as much of it as I could, um, 
In One Transitions are back in fashion on Broadway. Once thought to be a crutch to solve difficult scene changes, the in-one transition is back. There's even more to it. So there's a very good in-joke there about uh, what's going on. And by the way, I have to confess that um, I didn't expect to get that much of the actual quotation in, but the point is the audience was laughing so hard that I was able to get more than I thought I would be able to. So... All things considered, we have to say that um, getting the band back together is certainly pleasing its audience, tremendously so, tremendously so. I don't know how many of these people paid for their tickets. I don't know how many people um, paid a lot for their tickets. I will say that a number of people came up to me during intermission to talk, uh, they um, want to say hello, and um, not one of them paid um, anything close to uh, the ticket price, and many of them had uh, got in free. So as a result, you know, it's easy to have a good time when you get in free. So um, this is, uh, on the face of things, um, a, a pretty um, mediocre musical. And um, that may very well be a compliment to it under the circumstances. It makes people look immature, for one thing, and it makes teachers look like children versus Dave, which I mentioned a few weeks ago, um, where the teacher was considered really to be a smart guy here. um, um, The teacher here is a loser, um, self-proclaimed loser. What do I know? I'm just a teacher from New Jersey, that type of thing. So what happens is, is that, um, a gentleman who works on wall street loses his job. He has to go back home. He has to live with his mother and he decides to get the band back together that he had in high school. In fact, they were good enough to win a trophy. And this really bothers his arch villain who has done extraordinarily well. Uh, in the real estate businesses and has bought up a good deal of Sayreville, New Jersey. Now, in fact, he's done so well that what he's doing is um, being able to foreclose on this gentleman's mother's house. And um, But w- the idea of winning a trophy for a high school competition means so much to him that he is willing to forego the foreclosure if indeed he winds up winning the competition and our hero loses the competition. So, hmm, you know, I'm not sure that... uh, (laughs) I'm more than not sure uh, (laughs) that that this is um, at all believable. And more to the point, it just makes people look as if they're trapped in their adolescence, that they haven't grown at all. Why should it mean so much that something that happened to you in high school should still bother you when you're in your 40s? I mean, the the expression get over it should be used in this case more often than in many other cases. So so it's one of those shows, of course, where um, they encourage you to clap your hands to the music. You know, and they come down, they raise their hands high on stage and clap them over their heads, meaning that you have to clap now, too, which I bet Robert Preston did not do in 76 trombones when he did it. Uh, I It's a very famous story how the audience spoke. Uh, burst into applause, clapping in, in uh, rhythm uh, during the opening night of that show, and I bet he didn't come down and encourage it. So um, there was a, a, another good in-joke I have to mention, too, and that is the fact that um, there are auditioning members of the band. Doesn't this sound like the Full Monty, by the way? Many critics have made that um, analogy. And um, the thing with 
the full Monty, of course, is they were doing something different. They would, uh, nobody had thought about uh, performing um, in the nude or close to it. So um, under those circumstances, we're, we're interested in those guys in the full Monty, but here's just getting the band back together. And uh, But anyway, one of the band members has died. So as a result, they're auditioning, and um, the drama teacher from the local um, high school, who again looks like an idiot, decides to um, audition <laughs> as well. But what was, what was kind of uh, funny was that um, when you go to auditions, sometimes they have you um, identified by numbers. They they have you uh, pin onto your uh, shirt uh, a number that they assign you. And the drama teacher's number was five, six, seven, eight. So I like that. I thought that was uh, really good. So um, I also thought it was a nice comment on rock music when um, uh, show the world your next, your best three chords, um, because of <laughs> course uh, that's um, someone. Um, I mentioned the Music Man. They were thinking of the Music Man because at one point somebody says we're in deep shapoopy. Um, so uh, I guess the music man limps on. Um, but, you know, there's no attention to detail. There's this one scene where um, the villain is having hair removed from his back. You know, and, you know how they uh, press on those uh, horizontal strips and then they pull them off. And uh, So anyway, oh, fine, okay, he wants that done. But then, you know, at one point he turns around and he's got a perfectly clean back. I mean, you would think they would have him hairy aside from that little strip, but no, that attention to detail was not at all um, uh, something that they cared about. I was in interested that there was the expression hunkamunga used because that was used in the rock musical Michael mentioned a couple of weeks ago um <laughs> uh, your own thing uh, there was a song actually called the hunkamunga and I had to wonder if they knew about that uh, so now also in the immaturity parade uh, we have um a, a moment of the best day of my life it was when we were in high school and we went to Six Flags and um what a great day that was Good Lord, if that's the best day in your life and you're in your 40s, um, that's that's pretty sad. I mean, really. I mean, I, I went to my high school. Um, we went to Ted Hilton's in Moody's, Connecticut, and a good time was had by all. But good Lord, um, you know, if I had to name the highlights of my life, it would take me years before I remembered going on my high school trip. And so um, – and there's even a line or a lyric, I don't remember which, I swear – it was the best day of my life. So, um, so really, they're taking it extraordinarily seriously there. So, um, the problem is too that the band doesn't strike us as being anything of any more than moderate interest. It wasn't if they're doing anything that's original. Um, you see every little move that you've seen in every rock group everywhere. You know, I, it's, it's always so interesting to me that so many guitarists look as if they're having such a hard time when they're playing their instrument. They're gritting their teeth as if they're constipated and they're having such a hard time getting out that bowel movement. You know, on Broadway, we used to make it look easy, you know, but in rock, you have to make it look hard as if you have to um, conquer the instrument and um, it, that's a very difficult thing to do. So... Um, well, also the expression see you next Tuesday came in. This is not the first time this season we have heard that term. It was used in the rewritten Boys in the Band. Uh, it wasn't originally in Boys in the Band, but it was in this edition. And um, here it comes up again. See you next Tuesday, which is a euphemism for a word that's used an awful lot in the Book of Mormon, I'll tell you. So, um, well, anyway, um, it's not just getting the band back together. Our hero is also interested in getting involved with his old girlfriend who apparently he did wrong once upon a time. But she's actually now going out with the villain. So, um, and of course, he's 
we've got this tremendous um, arsenal of houses, and he's really a rich man. And yet, she's still waitressing, which struck me as a little odd. You would think you'd say to her, honey, quit the waitressing job. I can take care of you. you know? So maybe he's more a villain than I think. But, um, but of course, what happens is the reason we're in a restaurant is so we can have a big food fight. You know, it's like almost, Elvis, almost Elvis, every Elvis Presley movie um, used to have a fight in it. Well, you know, here's one here, too. So, um, so we have that. So anyway, it goes on. It, it, one of two things can happen. Either our hero and his band win or the other guys win. But, you know, the, by that point, you, you don't really care because the stakes are so low in terms of the guy winning and just winning the trophy that he didn't win way back when. Granted, the stakes are high for the other guy um, to uh, certainly be able to keep his, his mother's house. But... Um, well, what does happen, of course, is that all ends extraordinarily happily. Now, the town of Sayreville, New Jersey, actually became a producer in this show. Uh, a lot of people chipped in. And frankly, I think it makes Sayreville look bad. So I guess Sayreville feels there's no such thing as bad publicity. As long as we're getting publicity, what difference um, does it make? So anyway, this is a battle of the bands where I wish the battle would end where each band would kill each other. But um, that's me. And uh, we'll see what happens to getting the band together. Uh, I have to also commend Mary Lou Henner for playing the mother, um, who certainly doesn't have the body of the average mother, I'll tell you that, who comes into the audience in intermission and actually gives out Rice Krispie treats. And she's a very good sport to do that. Um, and uh, I, grab yourself a treat. You know, it, 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 it may, uh, the sugar may help you get through the second act. So, <laughs> so that's getting the band together for me. All right, Michael, what'd you think? Yeah, you know, unless I missed it, Mary Lou Henner did not do that at the performance on Thursday the 16th, nor did Ken Davenport, the lead producer, give the pre-show speech. It was someone else in the company. Um, This was, I guess, two days after the show received what I understand are largely very negative reviews, so... I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but just an observation. Uh, and it is possible I just didn't see Mary Lou Henner, but I was looking for her. So, Or maybe she was in the in the maze. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that could be. Yeah. Um, this, uh, yeah, the book of the show is credited to Ken Davenport and the Grundle Shots. It was put together by committee, which uh, sometimes can work, at least in the initial stages. But I think then you have to have a a real professional takeover at some point. And, and Ken uh, is primarily a producer, not a book writer. So maybe that was not the best idea. Uh, I, I would agree with Peter. There are, there are some examples of true wit and humor in this show. And then there's a lot of in, uh, uh, intended humor. That's really quite lame. One thing I noticed um, uh, and, and the show does uh play with uh, traditional elements of of many, many previous shows. There's lots of tropes and and memes that we've seen in in countless uh, other musicals that are regurgitated here or or, uh, translated to some extent and updated. Uh, One of them is uh, New Jersey jokes. Um, I noticed uh, there's a lot of those, uh, as as Peter mentioned, the action is set in Sayreville, New Jersey, and there are several Jersey jokes. But I'm rec- uh, 
recalling the end of Act One of No No Nanette, uh, right mm-hmm. before the end of the act, big laugh as Pauline the maid says, "Ah, she's going to visit her grandmother in Trenton, New Jersey." By the way, let me interrupt here to say that when that show played London, the line was tra- changed to Hackensack, New Jersey, and I think it's because Hackensack is a funnier word, and people don't know what Trenton is, and so at least Hackensack sounds funny. So yeah. a little piece of yes. trivia there. I remember you mentioned that before, and that, that is interesting. Um, the uh, I Love My Wife, the show, although it's not on the cast album for some reason, that show begins with the with the entire cast on stage singing the words Trenton, New, New Jersey. Jersey. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I, I had forgotten this. I don't think it was added, but when I saw Brigadoon um, last year at City Center, there's a line where one of the uh, – Scottish villagers says to the to uh, Jeff and Tommy, "You're Americans," and uh, Jeff says, "I am." He's he's from Jersey, so uh, you know th- this is a <laughs> I guess a a longstanding tradition, and um, as is the case with. Uh, other shows that have been directed by John Rando, most notably You're in Town, there's a lot of uh, either you could either call it homage or parody. Sometimes it's uh, one, sometimes the other, sometimes it's both of of elements from from many previous shows. I think um, that, yes, I, I think specifically they added this plot point about how this uh, this evil guy, the the, the villain of the piece basically uh Tygen billows is supposed to be is supposed to own 73 percent of Sarahville, new jersey which i'm not sure how that would even be possible but i think they put that in specifically because they realized that just having the battle of the bands uh you know the redo 20 years later would not be enough to to maintain interest but unfortunately if the if the if the plot point is, is so silly that you keep thinking about it, then I don't think it actually really ends up raising the stakes. Um, and that trope goes back uh, – that is one of the, I think, oldest tropes in in narrative history. Uh, you know, the damsel in distress. I can't pay the rent and the ah. – the mustache twirling villain, you must pay the rent. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure that that everyone involved in this show realized how old and hoary that that trope is. And they and they put it in knowing that and knowing what, that people would realize it. But uh, I just wanted to make that point. Uh, some of the humor in this just doesn't really make sense to me. Towards the end of Act One, we hear that um, that the lead guy, Mitch, uh, Papadopoulos, played by Mitchell Jarvis, and his band have gotten a gig at a wedding. Okay, fine. You know, I mean, they have to start somewhere. They're they're just they're just reuniting after twenty years. Act two begins, and we see uh, them on stage in the midst of uh, about to play for a Jewish wedding, and for some reason. The audience was in hysterics, and I thought, well, what exactly are they laughing at? The fact that it's Jewish? Uh, I mean, is that so unusual? And also, would they not have known that already? What we see is them standing there about to play with looks on their faces as if they just realized that they're about to play a Jewish wedding. And I didn't get that at all. So I I don't know. Maybe someone can explain that to me. Um, 
Mitchell Jarvis, uh, whom I just mentioned, was out of the show on what was to have been the first performance after the reviews on Tuesday, August 14th. Uh, uh, the press who were to have attended that night were asked to come later, so I rescheduled for Thursday the 16th. And on that night, um, the role of Danny Franco, uh, w- normally played by Kelly Barrett, was performed by a woman named Becca, and her last name is K-O with an umlaut, T-T-E. So maybe that's Keta. I'm not sure. Uh, and there was another uh, substitution in that performance as well. Uh, this show doesn't strike me as that especially taxing, but, you know, people do get sick and uh, – and I, I did ask about Mitchell Jarvis, and they just said it was he was having um, vocal problems or his voice was just not quite up to snuff on Tuesday the 14th. That they didn't feel that they wanted to uh, have him perform for the critics under that uh, under those circumstances. Uh, let's see. I made some other random notes here. Oh, that was funny. What uh, interesting? What? Peter said about the best three chords, um, and that is in the show. And but you know, some people might say that that kind of applies to the score here uh, by Mark Allen. The score is very enjoyable, and I would say extremely simple and and forgettable, which is maybe not so bad for a for a story like this. Uh, these are supposed to be amateurs, amateur musicians, and they, uh, I guess. It wouldn't be very realistic if they were playing all kinds of complicated, difficult rock songs. So um, so maybe that is appropriate, but uh, you can see and decide for yourself. I did think that the title song was extremely catchy, getting the band back together, uh, although it occurred to me that if if someone were to say to you, set that phrase to music, you might very well come up with (laughs) what Mark Allen came up with, which is basically getting the band back together Um, and is catchy, but also uh, maybe kind of obvious. Uh, Let's see what else do I have to say? The choreography by Christopher Bailey and the direction by John Rando, I think are completely uh, in the style of uh, homage, uh, and or derivative and or parody of, of many, many shows that we've seen before. And um, again, I'm, I'm sure that that was their goal. So it's not as if they uh, they didn't know what they're doing, but one might wish for a little bit more creativity if, if it were a, a slightly different kind of a story. And um, yes, uh, wanted to uh, certainly agree wholeheartedly about Brandon Williams, who plays the villain Tygen Billows. He really seemed to rise above uh, the material and get lots and lots of laughs. Uh, and I do think that John Rando is has become pretty expert at, at directing this kind of comedy. And I'm sure that he helped uh, uh, Mr. Williams, as well as several of the other cast members who have to carry the brunt of the comedy. Um, this show, it will be interesting to see... Uh, how long it lasts. Uh, we, we have heard dire reports about uh, the box office, so we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out, pardon the expression, and how long the show is with us. All right. So that is getting the band back together over at the Belasco. And uh, next up, Peter, you got a chance to see Pretty Woman, the musical. So tell us about Pretty Woman. 
Well, um, for me, in a way, the show was already dull before it even started because I looked at the list of musical numbers. And they have such titles as Welcome to Hollywood, Something About Her, Luckiest Girl in the World, On a Night Like Tonight, This Is My Life, Never Give Up on a Dream, You and I, I Can't Go Back, and Oh Yeah, You're Beautiful. All cliches, all phrases we have heard long before we reached our teenage years. So, And the lyrics that follow those titles don't have much interest either. You know, bring on the bubbles, forget all your troubles, you know, that type of thing. But this is the story about Edward Lewis, who um, takes a fancy to $100 an hour prostitute Vivian Ward. And uh, he sings, there's something about her. And one of the lyrics is, I can't put my finger on it. Oh. Well, you know, the song would be so much more interesting if he could. You know, so before this, Vivian has already sung that she wants to be anywhere but here, meaning Hollywood Boulevard, where she picks up men who drive by. Um, now, God knows that the time-honored want song for a woman um, has been <laughs> used so many times that um, we we expect it. That's not necessarily a problem, but you know, in this musical, this woman should not have this type of want song because one of the interesting things about the movie of Pretty Woman is that Vivian is totally inured to her life. She does not expect it to change. She doesn't have any goals whatsoever. It is exactly where she expects to be for the rest of her life and she, uh, her working life anyway. And she's, I'm not going to say perfectly happy with it, but I'm going to say that the, that the way Julia Roberts played it in the movie and the way the screenplay was written, it just doesn't even occur to her that her life can change. So in a way, that's more interesting than I've got to get out of this place because we expect a prostitute to sing, I've got to get out of this place. The idea of one who is fine with her job. Again, I'm not saying she looks forward to work. I'm just saying she's fine with it. Mm. She's accepted it. And you learn how to settle for what you get, you know, that type of thing. And she's not even unhappy in the movie. Now that's more interesting in a strange sort of way because it's, it's, we haven't seen that before. So anyway, well, I do think that the songwriters Brian Adams and Jim Valance were really writing songs hoping that they would cross over to the pop charts because that's why they have such generic lyrics. And Lord knows we also have um, <laughs> rhymes that aren't rhymes. Here we go. Not Cop, Boulevard, R, Dream Between, Miss Wish. Uh, if the, the rule today seems to be if the vowel is all right, we don't have to care about the consonants. You know, the, the, the vowel is good enough. So, um, so that drove me quite crazy too. Um, so, uh, and you know, have that distorted loud guitar sound that's meant to rustle up excitement. So, um, and you also have an offstage chorus joining in in a song in which Edward and Vivian sing, I believe in you and you believed in me and you know, another cliche. But anyway, um, you hear the offstage chorus join in, you know, in the pop manner. So I do think that's what they were really interested in is writing a whole bunch of pop songs, getting an album that might um, do well because they're all pop songs. And um, so, well, um, too bad. 
because there are moments here that could very well be uh, nicely musicalized. For example, early on, um, Vivian states her rules of what a night with her was going to be like, and that is no kissing. And that could have been a very interesting song in which she talks about, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do the other thing. And you could have had all these funny euphemisms for um, kinky sex acts, and uh, but no kissing. And have him come in because he says, I don't kiss either, which is very much an indication that both of them have their armor up. They do not want to be emotionally involved. They just want to be sexually involved, and that's all there is to it. So, and wouldn't it be something when they finally do kiss in the second act that we hear um, the strains of that earlier song played softly and very nicely, uh, because that's the real significant thing here. The fact that they vowed that they would not kiss, and yet they do when they officially fall in love. So, um, but Instead, we get songs like You're Beautiful. Now, come on. Now, you know, Lorelei Lee taught us, you know, and we all lose our charms at the end. Uh, You've got to have more than beauty, you know, because that beauty is not going to last. It just is not. Nobody has got away with that. Well, maybe Barbie Benton, who I saw in Aspen a few years ago. But I mean, uh, and maybe as long as there are plastic surgeons who keep improving what they're doing, because a lot of people seem to have gone to plastic surgeons who look like they didn't know what they were doing. But come on, when it all comes down, you know, the lyric and chorus line, now married and fat. I mean, you know, God knows that doesn't happen to everybody. But the point is, nobody will disagree with the fact that you lose your looks as you get older. So what this, there is the wit and the quips that make Vivian interesting to Edward in the movie. It's what she says. It's the way she says it. It's her perceptions that interest him. Not that she's beautiful. That's not a liability, and Lord knows Julia Roberts uh, certainly was beautiful at that age. But the point is that's just not enough to sustain a relationship that's supposed to happen to hold from this day forth till death do we part. So, I mean, that's that's really um, so superficial. All right. Um, There's there's a terrific... um, line in the movie too when they're about to go out on the town okay and she says to him if i forget to tell you i had a really good time tonight that's a terrific line because what she's saying is i appreciate this already i'm already so grateful you have given me this opportunity that you have made a lady out of me already so we haven't even got out yet we haven't even got out the the door and yet I I had a really good time tonight, meaning I know this is going to be an extraordinary night. Now, there is a song, but of course they didn't write it. Now, in both the film and the musical, there's a very revealing moment. Now, Edward is the type of guy who buys companies, and he um, then, at, at, at fire sales in essence, and then sells off parts of the company and makes a fortune that way. So, in both the film and the musical, He has a very revealing moment when he tells his lawyer, you know, when I was a kid, I used to love building blocks. I used to like putting Legos, things like that, one on top of the other. I'd love to build things. And now what I do is take things apart. You know, and that's a very, very nice idea. The fact that he realizes that the way he makes his living is not a nice one. He's preying on the miseries of others, and he is certainly not not building anything. Okay. However. 
However, ironically, let me let me throw this in. Ironically, at intermission, uh, my girlfriend said to me, uh, she mentioned a friend of ours who's extraordinarily wealthy and is a hedge fund guy, extraordinarily wealthy. So and um, she was going to make an analogy with um, Edward Lewis. And I said, no, no, because what Bob does, he gives back. He endows um, charities. He, has, he gives to Manhattan Theater Club. Um, <laughs> he, um, he certainly, Xavier uh, 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 High School, where he went, he's very loyal. He's on the board. He helped them build a building. I mean, so he gives back. All right. Why do I bring this up? The curtain goes up and you see um, the Edward Lewis Enterprises Charity Polo Classic. Now, I went back to the movie, and I was very careful about this. And yes, in the movie, they go to a polo classic, but it's not Edward's polo classic. And my point is, by putting the sign up saying the Edward Lewis polo classic, that undercuts later when he says, I don't build anything. If he's giving to a charity, he is giving something that shouldn't have been named after him. You know, so yeah, I, I don't know how people can watch the you know, people involved with these shows can watch them night after night after night and not notice things like this. It really it, it, it drives me crazy when that when that happens. So um there's also a moment in the movie where at the polo match that um Vivian shocks two society ladies by saying, I'm I'm only, I only I'm only with Edward for sex, whatever the line is, something like that. And they are shocked because they are high toned society ladies. Here the two ladies are played so broadly that they wouldn't be shocked. They really seem like um you should pardon the expression nafkas. Um if you don't know the Yiddish term, I'll have you look it up. So um I think Samantha Barks is very good. She's charming, appealing, and most stable in song. Um, nobody has to dance very much in this show. You'd never know that this woman uh, hails uh, from the Isle of Man, which is um, an island between Ireland and England, not from the flawless American accent um, that she has. And I, it's always amazed me how the British are so good at this, that they uh, can really do American accents and, and really you swear they're, they're American. Um, so... Um, well, there's also um, a, a, a bellboy, because much of this action takes place in a hotel, named Julio. And uh, a guy named Tommy Bracco is playing him. And I am telling you, this guy would set his hair on fire to be noticed. And um, somehow he gets involved in the number luckiest girl in the world. Now, this is where Kit and um, her girlfriend – I'm sorry, Kit is the girlfriend. Vivian and, and Kit uh, are, are best friends. They're both prostitutes, and they, they care for each other, and they like each other and all that. And Kit points out you are the luckiest girl in the world because that you've, you've fallen into this um, uh, pot of jam, so to speak. And um, so they're, they're talking about this. They're singing about this. Isn't it wonderful this has happened to you? I don't know why the bellboy is involved in this number, except that they want to show him off, and at the end he can do a somersault. And so that puts a button on the number. But he doesn't belong there at all. Uh, Orfe is in the show. She plays Kit. Um, and I guess that's why um, we have um, sung to her Never Give Up on a Dream and talking about the fact that you really can't give up on your dreams. I mean, you have to, you got to have a dream. If you don't have a dream, how are you going to have a dream come true? Okay, fine. But she's never expressed a dream like um, the quality I mentioned in Vivian earlier that um, she was perfectly inured to her life. If you're going to have this set up, you know, have her wistfully say earlier, I want to get out of the business, you know, but she doesn't. And so why are they talking about never give up on your dream when she never had one to begin with? So, all right. Andy Carl, um, God, uh, such a fine performer, but 
miscast. I would have loved to have seen Steve Kazee do the role because um, he might have been sterner, steelier. Not that Richard Gere in the movie was a bastard um, when it came to dealing with Vivian. He really wasn't, um, but he was steely. He was reserved. He was emotionally uninvolved. Andy Carl plays a nice guy. I mean, it, that's who he is. He has that face of a nice guy. After many a line, he goes a little, huh, you know, to, to uh, the way Jesse Mueller did Beautiful that made you like her. And he, he just doesn't have the unemotional qualities. Um, you know, Edward has to be loosened up. But Carl is too innately loose to begin with. He's a nice guy at the start and he's a nice guy at the end. Um, so... I, listen, I hope he stars in a million musicals. I really do. He's a great performer, and uh, I wish him extraordinarily well, but he's just not in the right part. He has wonderfully warm qualities, and they're just not required here. And he can't make the character into um, a, a no-emotion straight arrow, a straight spear, if you will, um, that Edward Lewis Inc. must be. So... Um, uh, he does have that gravelly voice that we hear in rock music now to indicate that the guy who's singing is really masculine. So he does that. And the anguish that love can bring. So that's in there, too. Um, a word, though, about Eric Anderson, who plays really four characters, but two of, of importance. Um, one is a, a narrator who really isn't needed. Um, and, you know, a, a street guy. It's called Happy Man. Uh, but then uh, he plays Mr. Thompson, the unctuous manager of the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. And he is very, very good in it. Um, though, however, just to get a laugh, and they'll do anything to get a laugh in this show, there's a scene in the hallway where um, Vivian is leaving. She's going. This is it. She's had it with Edward. She is leaving uh, because he told um, his lawyer friend that she was a prostitute. He spilled the beans. Uh, and purposely, it wasn't an accident or anything. He told him. So she knows this now uh, because the lawyer came up to her and said, oh, you know, you're a prostitute. I mean, not in those words, but anyway. So she is furious and she's walking out on him. And so she's in the um, corridor of the hotel where Mr. Thompson just happens to be. And Edward comes out and they have a fight. And they're yelling and screaming at each other about the fact that don't leave, I am leaving, don't leave, I am. And he's just standing there. And then he crosses his arms when she has an argument. Uh, she comes up with a good point as if to say, I'm on her side. And yes, this does get a laugh from the audience, but come on, this guy would not stay there. This is the type of manager who knows when he's things are none of his business and he would hightail it out of there fast. But to get a laugh, Okay, we'll try this, and it works. So, um, it does every time. Uh, you know, I, I I know the reviews were not good on this show; they were not. However, I have a feeling it's still going to be a big hit, um, as the film was uh, twenty-seven years ago. But the musical's main asset is the original screenplay, and. You know, we like musicals when they go into a different direction and improve. As I said, Dave, a few weeks ago, didn't make him a guy who ran a temp office. He was a teacher of history. So he had a lot of historical background. He had a lot of opinions on history. He was able to say to his class, anyone in this room could become president. And indeed, <laughs> one <laughs> did. And he didn't realize it was going to be he. This, this is smart writing. This is different. All that's happened here is a few lines have been cut out of the screenplay. So if you like the screenplay and you like pop music, um, you might have a good time in Pretty Woman. I really do believe it's going to run. I do. Um, but I, it could have been so much better than it turned out to be. Well, it's certainly starting out well at the box office. So. Sure is. Sure yeah, is. It's, uh, it's something I wanted to 
talk for just a minute about uh, is that the first two shows we talked about, Getting the Band Back Together and Pretty Woman the Musical, both had um, uh, these have both been, you know, in development and being worked on for many, many years uh, and had out of town tryouts. Uh, and it, as Peter pointed out, uh, uh, don't don't these people watch their own shows? I mean, uh, certainly these things had time and the ability to be fixed. And but on the one hand, getting the band back together is certainly uh, circling the drain insofar as grosses go, and the ability to stay on Broadway is questionable given the reviews and the grosses. Whereas Pretty Woman also got savaged in the reviews this week. Uh, and both these shows open this week, and but uh, is doing north of a million dollars in grosses, so maybe it will continue just on the strength of Pretty Woman was such a popular movie, and getting the band back together doesn't have the name recognition as the people walk up to Times Square uh, or are planning their trips to New York, and they see these two shows, or new shows, and they're like, Pretty Woman versus getting the band back together, and they're like, Oh, pretty women! I know that, and let's go see that. Um, supposing that that's how that happens, I want to ask you both a question about Pretty Woman, directed by Jerry Mitchell. Um, I'm, uh, this is not the first time where I have seen uh, Jerry Mitchell opt for a really beautiful and intricate dance number that does not move the story forward. And you, Peter, you had mentioned it by uh, the discussion of the bellhop and why was he in this scene. And it mm. seems like uh, they're there because they're going to do some wonderful dancing and really not to move the story forward. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this uh, uh, about well, Jerry Mitchell? There are shows that have diverti small, uh, you know. I'm sure uh-huh. we, could all, we could all think of them, but but some of them, uh, I guess it partly depends on if they're completely unrelated to the to the main characters, or even if there's a little bit of a tie there, that can be enough. And of course, the quality of the the number itself has a lot to do with it. Uh, before the, we started, I was on Facebook and somebody had put up a clip of Karen Morrow doing I Had a Ball. Uh, in a way, I shouldn't put it that way because Karen Morrow starts the number and she ends the number. But boy, is there on a white dancing in between. And looking at that choreography, I, I, uh, Sondheim often says that he thinks music is magic. To me, choreography is magic. I have no idea how people remember dance steps. It, 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 it's amazing to me that they can do it and i mean i've seen uh people in rehearsal um learn dance steps right away quick as can be and i'm still amazed by it and the dance steps in um i had a ball are extraordinarily complicated and um it's 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 flabbergasting to see it so try to find that clip of i had a ball and you'll certainly see a tremendous um amount of choreography the whole number lasts seven minutes and 25 seconds as it said on the screen so this is a generous amount of time for uh for dancing. So what's my point? I yeah, a lot of critics said there were a lot of dancing in Pretty Women. It didn't even seem it to me. So um, you know, but uh I, I whether it advances the, the story forward or whether it doesn't, I'm often in awe of the fact that people can just remember dance steps, but I guess that's me. 
So, Peter, you also mentioned Steve Kazee, uh, and I just wanted to let the listeners know that Steve uh, originated this role uh, out of town, this Richard Gere uh, role in, in Pretty Women the Musical, uh, and had to depart the production because he had a personal family tragedy. His father's house burned down, and it really threw his family into a tailspin, and he... Uh, left a production to go and help his family, uh, which was uh, is quite the shock. And and Andy Carl stepped in, uh, sort of. You know, Orfe was already in the production. Andy Carl's married to Orfe and had been in and around the production. It seemed like a uh, a great great Deus ex machina to bring Andy Carl into this thing. So I I just wanted to mention to the listeners that that was why. Uh, and uh, that uh, Steve is no longer with the production. Well, we that that is what the what was in the press. Uh, it, it has occurred to I know some people that I've spoken with that perhaps, although certainly the story of that tragedy is 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 not a lie and is absolutely true. That that might not have been the specific reason why Steve Kazee left the production. And who knows? Maybe he was playing it more mm-hmm. the way that Peter is making the excellent point that it should be played. Uh, and maybe it sounds to me, not having seen this show yet, I'm seeing it next week, that maybe they had a lot of difficulty in trying to adapt it to the Me Too era. Mm. Uh, because obviously the basic story is is very, very dicey in those terms. Um, this would not be the first time that a prostitute uh, was uh, displayed on stage as empowered. I remember in uh, The Life, the Cy Coleman musical, mm-hmm. there's the song, My Body is My Body, and, and they, they make a very big point about that. It's a tremendously complex situation when, when people sell their bodies, and we certainly don't have time to go into it here. But anyway, that song is in that. I remember when Sweet Charity was revived. Mm-hmm. Um, the, they rewrote the whole ending uh, to reflect that. Uh, and I, I'm not, I wasn't talking about the Sutton Foster one. I was talking about the Christina Applegate one, but I, I guess it applies to both. So, well, in fact, do you remember that Jane Krakowski was supposed to do it? And she said, I just can't do this part. I mean, I just cannot say these things that happen at the end of this show. So uh, and she she really did battle with Neil Simon and um, wound up. Uh, leaving the production. I mean, he wasn't happy with her and she wasn't happy with him. So, I mean, that's quite a thing. That, yes, I do uh, remember. That, Thanks for yeah. pointing that out. Yeah. yeah. All right. Next up, uh, Peter, you got a chance to see Katie Thompson's Red at the DR2. So tell us about Red. <laughs> yeah. R period, R period, R period, R period, E period, D period. And I think, I think that this is a parody, a satire on the white supremacist movement. I think it's not directed that way, though. You know, um, Andy, as we talked last week, Andy Sandberg um, tends to direct broadly, and uh, this is directed very broadly. Well, anyway, the whole point of the story is that there are two people, a man and a woman, who are insistent that red-haired people get their due, and if this means uh, doing away, or at least pushing down on the totem pole of life, um, brunettes and blondes, Grey's not even mentioned, of course, because, of course, old people are irrelevant in America, um, then that's the way it has to be. And that's really what this show is about. So I guess it's about the white supremacist movement, but, you know, it, it 
I can't be sure, and I may be giving them more credit than uh, they deserve on this. I don't know if this happens every night, but um, there's nothing in the playbook to indicate that there's going to be a guest star every night. But suddenly they were talking about the fact that um, the, the star of Shrek and, uh, and other shows, uh, and they mentioned the shows, and uh, was going to be here, uh, Christopher Sieber. And, um, gee, oh, okay, you know, I mean, um, and the joke obviously is going to be that Chris didn't show up. Chris showed up. He was on stage where he sang a song that may set the record, may, seriously, for prorated the least number of rhymes, genuine rhymes in a song. I'm telling you, I, I, I couldn't believe that I was hearing so few rhymes in one song. Um, and ironically enough, uh, he um, is singing about the fact that uh, redheads aren't all they're cracked up to be. Uh, again, this is a very silly show. But, 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 I have to admit this is really true, that later in the show, the two uh, people who are running this campaign, the man and the woman, start improvising songs, improvising. That's the whole point of it, you know. Um, uh, and so one comes up with a couple of lines, and the other one comes up with a couple of lines, and then the other one comes up with a couple of lines, and then the other person says, that doesn't rhyme. And God help me, I actually yelled out, what has I mean, I actually did. I mean, I couldn't believe it. They, I don't think they heard me, though. But, um, but it really affected me to that degree. So, But I don't know. I, I'd love to talk to these authors and see if they're happy with the production they're getting. Uh, I won't be surprised if they, if they feel that what they were writing did not wind up on the stage as a result of um, uh, Andy Samberg's wanting to find laughs and give people a good time. His... His heart is in a good place. I'm just not sure he's serving the material. Okay, so that is read over at the DR2. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Peter, you also saw Be More Chill over Signature Center. So tell us about your take on this uh, hot show. Well, you know, the thing is that um, <laughs> I almost started talking about Big Chill when Michael was talking about the New Jersey jokes, because there are two in Be More Chill. Considering the fact that we are talking about um, a musical that's supposed to be uh, cutting edge and, and all that, it's not above um, grabbing uh, the chance to uh, mock New Jersey here and there. So, um, so it, 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 by the way, uh, I don't know if you know it, there was a time when it wasn't Jersey that was mocked, it was Philadelphia that was always the bug. <laughs> jokes you know so somehow it's moved up uh, closer than it used to be uh i liked be more chill for an act and a half um i really thought it was uh, quite quite smart in so many ways um for one thing we have our hero jeremy who uh, feels he's a loser and i know that i was uh, very unpopular when i said that i didn't much like ben platt who i didn't believe in dear evan hansen uh because i felt he was overdoing it and um and, of course, that's a minority opinion, needless to say. But here's Will Rowland, who played the part, and I would love to have seen him do it, because now he's moved over to this, and uh, this is an honest performance. This is what I really believe, and he made me believe, and I think it's one of the finest performances um, of the year, uh, as he uh, shows the nervousness, the worry about being a loser in high school. 
uh, Ben Brantley um, was famous for writing this review that um, said, I'm not the target audience. Um, neither am I. But nevertheless, I could appreciate so many things in this show that I thought were extraordinarily strong. Um, the and, and, you know, for all the talk that we complained about the fact that musicals are just based on movies now, you have to give Joe Iconis and his um, collaborator, Joe Trace, credit for um, taking a novel. I mean, this is based on a novel. So anyway, so anyway, Jeremy is in love with Christine and Christine is an actress in the drama club. And this makes sense that he joins because I can't tell you how many men I have interviewed. Say, how'd you get started? Well, I was interested in this girl and she was in the drama club or yeah, or, you know, I, I, I've, I heard drama club is a good place to meet girls. So I joined and gee, I liked it and I stayed with it. You know, and so, um, so I, I believe this totally the guys, um, join drama clubs to meet girls or be with girls. So, um, Christine has a wonderful song about how much she loves uh, play rehearsals and, um, and she loves the discipline of stage directions. I mean, this is, this is really very incisive stuff. I really think that, um, aside from false accents, things like Jeremy, um, Joe Iconis is an excellent lyricist in terms of the rest of the craft. Yes, they rhyme and terrific ideas. So, um, um, but it's wonderful where a girl comes to audition and says, um, has this theater always been here? I mean, what a great line because you know, it shows the, how, how low on the radar um, the drama club is in, in so many high schools. That may be changing, and I hope it is, but certainly um, she's uh, she does strike the truth when she says, has this theater always been here? And, of course, she's the most gorgeous girl you know, that everybody wants to be with, and she's um, she'd be very much at home on 52nd Street because she is a very – mean girls so um <laughs> i loved 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 when um uh one of the characters um a, a very um popular boy um jake um says to christine um gee in the play uh you were in romeo and juliet you know i remember you last year i saw it you were really good and i love when you did your victory dance and she says, well, that's called taking a bow. And the idea that <laughs> that, that is perceived by him as a victory dance, I thought was really uh, terrific. All right. So what does Jeremy do? He hears about this drug you can take. It is a drug. Let's face it. It's a pill called a squip. Okay. And um, it changes your life. It makes you uh, terrific. And it makes you uh, very popular. Ironically enough, his friend Michael tells him about it. Michael is also a so-called loser, though there's a phenomenal song idea where he talks about the fact, hey, you know, we get to college we'll be all right this is just high school and that may be a little too knowing from uh the point of view of a of a, a kid in high school but on the other hand um it's very possible that michael might have got this information from college students who have told him don't worry you'll be okay once you get to college high school is a very different ball game uh, the sensibility of this show is very much to me like that uh, movie fast times at ridgemont high very much. The kids are really sharp. They're street smart. They know what's going on. So I think that's um, a, a great strength of this show. There's a wonderful metaphor in a song about um, playing a video game, a two-player game, because it really is a metaphor for friendship, that uh, it does bond you together uh, by playing a game. And uh, Michael does worry uh, if you take the pill, will you be too good for video games, um, meaning will you stop your friendship with me? Which indeed does happen once he takes the drug. It seems to be a show that's anti-drug. Uh, nothing wrong with that, of course. Um, but 
what I find so perplexing, at the end of the show, there seems to be an endorsement for ecstasy, uh, the drug, not the state of mind. And uh, there's a line that really suggests that um, that's perfectly fine to do. So, um, But anyway, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so we have Squip is a character played by Jason Tam, and he's essentially – uh, maimed to Jeremy's Agnes Gooch, in which he um, makes him uh, a popular guy, but at great expense, great expense. One of the first things he does is change his wardrobe, and he has him put on an M&M shirt, even though there's a lot of talk about how M&M stays have come and gone. I don't know if that's true in the pop world, but there's certainly um, the indication that M&M, on more than one occasion, it's brought up that he's passe. So um, there's a very nice point made about the fact that um, that's made in the Broadway comedy um, 40 Carats, and that is people take their cue from you. If you act confident, they'll just assume you're confident. If you act like you're a loser, they're going to judge you as that. So a lot of it comes from how you um, present yourself to the world. So um, so I think that's really effective. Again, a lot of teenage stuff here. You know, um, if you hate the same people, then you bond. Um, it's hard to like – if you're a girl, it's hard to like a boy. If your best girlfriend doesn't approve of him, that that's an issue as well. So um, these are very, very um, strong um, ideas and um, very smart ideas. The play they're putting on is A Midsummer Night's Dream, though the director um, is deciding to do it very differently. Uh, he's setting it in Athens, Georgia. Uh, and uh, instead of fairies, we have zombies. So now it's a Midsummer's Night Mare. Uh, and there's a very funny moment where an actress in the show talks about the wasteland, and she touches her own waist that she really believes that's what wasteland is. She doesn't get um, the um, the homonym at all. So um, uh, what I liked about the show too is the fact that the father of the boy is not played as a silly moron. Uh, he has his problems. He has his demons. But he's not an idiot. And in many instances, he's a damn good father and trying the best for his kid. And he has a very nice song about uh, that that's uh, extraordinarily touching. So uh, so um, um, I was at the end of the first act, I was really delighted. And by the way, you know, uh, Michael and other people too have told me, oh God, you're not going to be able to take it. This kid screams so much. I mean, in the audience, they know it so well. That didn't happen last night, frankly. Uh, they liked it. They were enthusiastic. They knew where everything was. When Michael came on, even though he's not a star, um, he got entrance applause because they knew the character. But I felt they behaved uh, well within the um, parameters of uh, decent theatrical behavior, by the way, So, um, though they loved it uh, very much. But I, I do feel it goes off the rails um, once it gets so much into this – um, what Squip is, and there's a lot of stuff about Mountain Dew. I'm amazed they're using a real product uh, because I can't imagine the Mountain Dew people are terribly happy to be involved with, um, uh, unless it's like, say, a real New Jersey. You know, um, any publicity is good publicity, even when it's bad. So, um, but um, the whole thing with the play, I expect it to be much more clever and much more incisive. But it, it turns dark on a dime, and um, I, I, I do feel it comes to a conclusion much too quickly. And as I said, that ecstasy thing at the end was very strange to me under the circumstances. But um, I don't know how it has happened because Joe Akonis has been around for a while. He won a Kleban Award. He won a Larson Award. I have never been in the same room where I've even heard one of his songs at a benefit. So this was my introduction to him, and I'm very late to the party. But I'm very glad I got to the party because I really respect what this guy can do. And um, so uh, I know we're going to be hearing more from him. I won't be surprised if B-Boy Chill moves. And uh, 
even if they don't solve the things that bother me in the second act, I wish it well. I truly do. And not just because it's bringing kids into the theater, but because it's a quality work that's bringing kids into the theater. And that's that's what I want. I just don't want kids coming to the theater just so we can say that they're there and we can count them in the grosses. That's not good enough. It's got to be good stuff. And this is an intelligent show. Peter, did you not? Did you? I'm sorry. Did you not see Blood Song of Love a few years ago? No, no. Oh I, yeah, that's a very good show that, that uh, Joe Iconis wrote score for. I'm telling you, I've never been in the right place at the right time. It is amazing to me. I mean, there's always been something that has held me up. Uh, I've been out of town or what have you. I mean, yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I know you understand because um, yes, it does happen to all of us. You can't see them all, but, but it's flabbergasting to me that um, and it has been that I've been avoiding him. I've wanted to hear because so many people have told me this is the real thing and last night I learned that it's true. I, I did just want to say also, if I said anything that uh, made it sound like that the audience response for Be More Chill was inappropriate, uh, I, I did not mean to say that. Uh, because, you might have understood you too. You know, well, but... well, no, I, I, it was very vociferous, but I did notice, and in fact, one of our, I think one of our other colleagues commented on this too, uh, it was only in the right places. People weren't screaming during, during songs. Uh, they were waiting, you know, till till the appropriate moments at the end of numbers and 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 where they should be and and i i didn't note that because it's so often that that's not the case nowadays uh and i it didn't also it didn't feel like their response was manufactured to me it did feel like it was organic uh even even though it was it was it was very very vociferous but i I uh, I've had I've seen many worse cases of. Oh, me too. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So, so, so I perhaps I was not clear. I just wanted to say uh, that, and I might have misunderstood. George Salazar, by the way, is very good as Michael in that uh, the show's most famous night. Um, song Michael in the Bathroom, which uh, really hits all the places it has to hit. I mean, I, uh, at one point, I really felt the song was over and it wasn't. And usually in cases like that, you're you're saying, oh, my God, it's still going on. No, because more interesting perceptions were about to be made, more true to life perceptions, more accurate perceptions. So um, I welcomed them. So. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> of course, people know my sensibility. And um, as late as yesterday afternoon, a friend of mine said, you're going to hate it. And, indeed, he hadn't seen it. You know, but people just assume. And a lot of it came from, of course, Ben Brantley's review, where he talked about uh, it's I'm not the target audience. And what he means is he's not a young man. And um, and I'm older than Ben Brantley, to say the least. So, um, so everybody expected me to truly, truly hate it. And this is not my way of saying, oh, I'm really young at heart. I, I'm, I'm really cool. You know, it's not that because, believe me, um, I, I don't need that value in my life. Um, it's got to be good for, for me to uh, say it's good, or at least my perception of what's good. And um, I'm certainly ringing in here saying that um, this is very worthwhile and it's fine with me if it comes to Broadway. Peter, um, I, you answered my first question. I had two was, did you see Be More Chill at Two River? Because uh, you often get down to Two River to see shows, but I guess you oh, didn't. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's just amazing, you know, so... Uh... And the uh, second one was was that uh, back in the very beginning of the show, did you see getting the band back together at George Street? 
I did, in fact, yeah, yeah. And um, but it's a long five years ago. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) And given that I see three hundred shows a year, you know, that's suddenly you know fifteen hundred shows or or more. So, uh, so I, as things things were coming back to me as I was seeing, I said, oh yeah, 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 that's right. I remember the thing about the house and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I'm not in a position to say, oh, they changed it dramatically, or they just stood pat. They didn't make a single change. I don't know. I don't remember. But I did see it there. Well, let's uh, just delve back maybe 10 or 15 shows uh, into your catalog to Twelfth Night at the Delacorte. Uh, You saw it. So tell us about your take on Twelfth Night. Well, one of the things was that I really expected this to be more Twelfth Nighty than it turned out to be. Um, I I didn't realize that, uh, you know, some people have said that Twelfth Night is really the first musical. I'm talking about Shakespeare's Twelfth Night now because there were six songs in it. And so that's what I assumed would happen. I didn't realize that it was actually going to be a genuine musical. I just thought that Shana Todd was going to come in and put music to the six songs that are in Twelfth Night. No, not at all. And um, I really enjoyed uh, her music very much. Um, And um, she writes in a sprawling way, not unlike the way David Yazbek writes. You know, there are long, long lines and... uh, and uh, they're not really um, – they're funky. They're, they're, they're angular. And, um, and that's her style. And she's very appealing, too, in the show as well, by the way. And um, I really enjoyed seeing her. In a way, I wish she were doing the music for The Devil Wears Prada rather than the, just the lyrics because I do think that she has um, a, a funky musical style that's worth hearing. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I enjoyed very much Nikki M. James' as Viola and Troy Anthony as Sebastian. Not that he has nearly as much to do. So um, I had a good time here. Here. But I couldn't help thinking all along the way, you know, Two Gentlemen of Verona takes a lot of heat simply because it beat out Follies. I do believe if it was season, um, if it had opened in the 67, 68, uh, Tony Race when Hallelujah Baby won, I think everybody would love Two Gentlemen of Verona. Um, even with, oh, God knows, um, it's it's terrible accents on the syllables of um, the songs, which John Guerre said to me, look, this is the way Galt said it. What could I tell you? Um, <laughs> we wrote the lyrics first and he put them to music and this is what he heard and you know, we didn't fight him. But, um, but compared to Two Gentlemen of Verona, this Twelfth Night uh, doesn't hold a matchstick, let alone a candle. So um, I think I would have enjoyed it more if I had not known Two Gentlemen of Verona, which is a personal favorite of mine. And ironically enough, I've seen almost as many times as Follies. You think it never gets done, but it really does. But anyway, um, 90 minutes and out, a lot of fun. Um, and certainly um, I have to say that um, Andrew Coper as Malvolio was excellent, um, and, and he has that very good song, Count Malvolio, that uh, is quite wise. So um, I also very much like Ado Blankson Wood, who played Orsino, as much as Countess Olivia, who was Nanya Akuni Goodrich. So, uh, yeah, so it, it, worked, it works very well, and it's always pleasant to sit in the park on a nice night, and this was a nice night. I brought my umbrella, as it turned out I didn't need it. So, so uh, yeah, I, but being introduced to Shana Tob's music was was a great treat, and um, and after she gets through with the Devil Wears Prada, just as after Sondheim got through with West Side Story and Gypsy, I hope that she gets a chance to do um, musicals where she does both music and lyrics. So, uh, and if Devil Wears Prada is a hit, and I I bet it is, um, then she'll probably have the opportunity to go back to composing, and I'll welcome that as well. All right. 
Great. So uh, last up this morning, Michael, you got a chance to take a listen to a new cast recording of The Cradle Will Rock from Bridge Records, which is uh, something that was recorded at live uh, recorded live at Opera Saratoga in July 2017. So tell us about this recording. Yes, this is the first complete recording of a, a very historic, epic-making work. Uh, John Mauchery is the conductor. Uh, uh, I'm sure many of our listeners know his work. He's given us, among many other things, uh, a complete recording of Street Scene quite a few years ago. And this is the complete score, uh, the complete score and text of The Cradle of Rock, uh, featuring Mark Blitzstein's original 1937 orchestration and also including a historic recording of Blitzstein discussing the show. So I think it's, it's really quite an interesting item. This, uh, just briefly to recap, is a 1937 play in music by Mark Blitzstein, originally a part of the Federal Theater Project that was directed by Orson Welles and produced by John Hausman. So <laughs> that's some pretty uh, heavy guns there. Um, and it, the musical is a Brechtian allegory of corruption and corporate greed uh, and includes lots of characters uh, set in Steeltown, USA. It follows the efforts of Larry Foreman, uh, that's his name, to unionize the town's workers and combat wicked, greedy businessman Mr. Mister, who controls the town's factory, press, church and social organization. And it's almost entirely sung through the piece. It's really many people would call it more of an opera uh, than a musical. Uh, it it uh, it incorporates popular song styles of the time. Uh, Blitzstein was very eclectic, and uh, he and he got a chance to show that in in this piece. Uh, famously, the WPA temporarily shut down the original production of The Cradle of Rock a few days before it was to have opened on Broadway. Uh, and because of the content of it, which, you know, was, was very, uh, very much pro-union aside from everything else. And what happened was that the actors wind up mar wound up marching to another theater and eventually performing the work there with Blitzstein playing the piano on stage and the cast members singing their parts from the audience in order to get around the, uh, the, the legal issues. So, uh, if if only for that historical nugget, uh, th this is a an epic making work and, and an iconic work. Uh, it was unfortunately uh, it's not it's not revived too often. And the last time I saw it was at uh, City Center um, in their I guess in their off center series, and it was not. I, I did not like that production at all. Uh, but this is a recording that anyone. Uh, who knows the work and anyone who's interested in getting to know it and, uh, and anyone who's interested in the history of musical theater should definitely pick up. Uh, I would say to be honest that the acting of the dialogue is, is not uh, quite at the level that perhaps a, you know, a musical theater cast uh, rather than an opera cast would bring to it. But still, this is, this is a really essential item. And I'm so glad that things like this can still come about. I think uh, nowadays we see uh, when something like this is released, it is, they're more often live recordings, which ultimately I suppose are far cheaper than studio recordings, but that's okay. The sound is great. Uh, there's arguably more theatricality to a live recording. And uh, so on balance, you know, I, I think that's just fine. And, and this is something you should definitely look into if it sounds like uh, something you'd be interested in. 
I am crazy for the Cradle Will Rock, and I'm very mm-hmm. happy that my oldest and dearest friend in the world happened to get it for me as a birthday present. Uh, I love the fact that one of my favorite albums of all time came from my very best friend. But um, the one I'm talking about is the 1964 recording that was made of the revival that starred Jerry Orbach as Larry Foreman. Um, mm. And um, uh, uh, from the first notes, I remember so vividly, <clears throat> I was doing a jigsaw puzzle that another friend had given me as a gift when I was playing the album from the first notes I was intoxicated by it. I just thought it was tremendous. And um, it's been a terrific favorite of mine. And uh, people know that uh, whenever I meet them, I'm going to ask them, um, if there were a time machine, what would you go back and see? And uh, eventually, after they tell me what uh, they would, and by the way, usually it's Follies, Merman and Gypsy, Streisand and Funny Girl, Brigadoon, West Side Story, Showboat, those are usually the answers. When they ask me, I always say, that first night of Cradle will rock. I would love to have been a part of that. Michael, I could be wrong, but I think they didn't close down that theater until the very day. I think the cast showed up expecting to do the performance that night. And I, I mean, right. Wrong. But um, anyway, um, and so they had to find a new theater. And as John Houseman tells the story, poor Gene Rosenthal, who would later be uh, one of the great lighting designers in Broadway history, but at that point was just like a gopher, um, had to uh, go around around uh, with a piano on a truck, not knowing where that piano was going to wind up when they finally found the theater, which was um, the Venice Theater on, I think, 59th Street. doesn't exist anymore. And uh, yes, the reason that they had to um, stay in their seats was that um, equity would not allow them to perform under these circumstances. So that's why they had to be in the seat. My, Mark Listening was not a member of equity so he could get on stage and play the piano and um it's always been said that um it was i don't remember olive's last name but um she was uh the first person who had to get up and sing and the, the, how courageous that had to be yes you know, uh, to be the first one you know not knowing exactly what was going to happen some of this needless to say not all of it was actually detailed in the movie the cra- not movie cradle will rock no the and right. um but it was also um dovetailed with a story about um censorship in art as well as censorship in musicals so um some people may know the story from the cradle will rock i'm sorry cradle will rock movie but um but if you don't know this score i i tell you it really is fascinating enervating uh exciting um i i know a lot of people consider it unmelodic i don't get that at all whatsoever and um it is agitprop no question the bad guy in town is mr mr which ironically enough became the name of a rock group many years later (laughs) and um and um, his daughter is Sister Mister, and um, because there's Junior Mister, so uh, so we have that type, Reverend Salvation. There's a very nice uh, piece about how um, Reverend Salvation uh, doesn't want war because, of course, he's a minister, and uh, you know people, men of God, don't want war except when Mrs. Mister tells him uh, that he better start endorsing war because we need the money, and suddenly uh, he's not advocating peace anymore as he says i'm advocating inner peace that's what i really mean you're inner peace in your body you know so so there's a lot of um, nice little twists and turns like that there's a parody of popular songs one called honolulu that's great fun so uh and the title song is extraordinarily stirring extraordinarily mm. so um there have been a lot of recordings of the cradle of rock i'm happy to say and there's even been a bootleg recording that has surfaced where it was done at city opera i believe in 1960 and um ironically enough <laughs> 
<laughs> the orchestration sounds so strange to me because every other recording is used a piano, right. um, replicating the way it was originally done. So it's, um, but I am looking forward to this recording as I will any recording of the Cradle of Rock. And yes, I, I agree with Michael. I don't think it got its due at off center where it was really off center mm. and not representative of what the work uh, really can be. Okay, so uh, that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you're going to be able to find Broadway Radio's shows. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, what was the answer to last week's trivia? Well, the melody that begins the overture of a 1940s smash hit musical is also heard in the first act finale of a 1960s smash hit musical. What's the piece of music and the names of both musicals? Well, the first movement of Grieg's Piano Concerto in A minor mm. is the melody that begins the overture of Song of Norway. That's the 1940s smash hit. And it's also heard in the first act finale the song Rosemary of the 1960 smash hit, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. This one goes, dun, da-da-dun, 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 you get it. Anyway, uh, Seth Christenfeld, by the way, pointed out, um, he got it, but he also pointed out that this piece of music shows up a little bit in Make the Most of Your Music, the song in Follies in 1987 London, um, which replaced Live, Laugh, Love, uh, which hasn't um, been heard since. Um, So... um, so he got it. Uh, he was the third to get it. Jack Leshner was the first, followed by Brigadude. So this week's question. The film version of one of the earliest Tony-winning musicals opened on a holiday. The scheduling showed that the movie executives were keenly aware of its plot. What's the show in the holiday? Now, Seth has already got this one. Why? Because I put it on that test that James alluded to earlier <laughs> in the show. If you go to masterworksbroadway.com, you scroll down a little, you will see the Broadway trivia. Most of them are questions that I've already asked. This one is a new one. But most of them are ones that you um, may uh, get the answers to if you've been a faithful listener to these podcasts. Otherwise, it'll probably drive you crazy. But that's another story. <laughs> and I just said, quick, really quickly say something fascinating, I think. Um, the if you listen closely to the, uh, the soundtrack, the film soundtrack recording of How to Succeed, or if you're watching the movie, you will note that the Grieg uh, piece that Peter mentioned is altered slightly. And I think it was because they had to do that because they didn't have the rights to the music. Because that was around the time when uh, – wasn't that around the time when they were making the movie Song of Norway? Oh, uh, a little earlier, but it might have been, uh, I think the Song of Norway movie, which, by the way, is terrible, um, I think was 1972. The How to Succeed movie was 67. So, I don't know, you know, it takes a long time for things to happen. So, yeah, that, it very well might have been a rights problem. Good for you. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that because I directed the show years ago, and I and I noticed, I mean, they changed, like, a couple of notes, but it's enough for it yeah, for, yeah. for you to say, well, that's not it. We're, we're, we're not using his music. This uh-huh. just sounds like uh-huh. <laughs> it's really interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'll just say Ice Ice Baby. Not, <laughs> not if you guys know that reference. Anyway, so if you have an answer to that trivia question, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. 
So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Nothing's changed much at exit 124 From the bank of Major's Farm to the liquor store SUV after SUV filled with folks I used to know Who never left this town or the status quo Roll out of bed each day, watch my dreams fade away To a breakfast set for one Punch the same punch clock, make the same cop talk As the years keep ticking on This lousy day began But if I'm being true Between me and you This is not what I had planned In New Jersey Hell yeah Never thought I would find my ass Back in Jersey Hell yeah Just say 